So welcome to part two uh, on our series on marriage. Now, disclaimer, before we get rolling here, uh, happy Mother's Day. Happy Mother's Day. Um, several years ago, I got myself into some trouble on Mother's Day um, because when I go through and am creating series and figuring out what I'm going to talk to, uh, talk about, uh, there are two days that I pay attention to because I absolutely have to. Uh, those days are Christmas and Easter. Uh, I have my assigned topics on those days. I cannot vary uh, from those days. And so those two I consider. All the rest of the days on the calendar, I do not consider. I just make series and I create the series and this is, this is what we do. And so I'm not talking, I don't do specific Mother's Day, specific Father's Day sermons. Uh, I find a lot of those to end up being pretty problematic in the way they go about them. Uh, I don't do Memorial Day stuff. I don't do, I just don't, right? It's just, I make it now a couple years ago that really got me in trouble. Um, because uh, I wasn't paying attention and I ended up spending an entire Mother's Day talking about the love of the Father. Um, <laughs> it wasn't until everything was over that someone very upset came up to me and <laughs> pointed out the error of my ways. Um, I'm afraid I've done it again. <laughs> so we're going to talk about something today that we're going to get into, and, and I'm not even going to tell you what it is. You'll know as soon as I say it. Uh, but please know two things. One, uh, I did not intentionally land it on Mother's Day. Two, this was supposed to be last week. <laughs> this was supposed to be last week. And I thought, you know, as I went to review, because I had kind of, you know, I'd gotten everything pretty done uh, last week. And then when I went to review uh, yesterday, I was like, uh-oh. <laughs> uh-oh, this is going to be talked about. And I'm like, well, can I move it around in the series? And it just didn't make sense. And so, I'm sorry. <laughs> Stick with me. Give me a chance. <laughs> just, I'm sorry. I'm so sorry. I'm so sorry. <laughs> Here we go. Here's how we started out the marriage series a couple of weeks ago. Uh, <laughs> uh, that was this. We talked about how every single one of us come into uh, our relationships and our marriage uh, with things in mind that we want to be true, right? Things, uh, uh, it's as though we all carry a box in with us. And in this box, we've put all of our hopes and desires and dreams, right? This is what marriage is going to be. And the problem with that is that as we dream about the future, um, what we think about uh, inside that box, those all things, uh, everything in the future, what we hope it would be, organizes itself around our box, right? And when you're envisioning it, like it all is centered around what your things are, right? Our hopes, our dreams, I, our desires. For example, um, as I was a young man and thinking about the days, you know, coming that I would hopefully one day be married, um, I did not ever daydream about becoming the perfect partner for someone. Now, I daydreamed a lot about what the perfect partner for me was going to be, but never did I spend time dreaming of myself becoming the perfect partner, right? Uh, and when I met Kate, 
I thought, well, there it is. She is the perfect person for me. So, so to the altar on that day that we committed ourselves to each other, I brought a ring and I brought my box of hopes and dreams and desires to hand to her, right? And I wasn't the only one with a box that day. She showed up with her metaphorical box of hopes and dreams and desires uh, that all seemed perfectly reasonable to her as well. Uh, And and the thing is, is that these things seem reasonable as we're putting them together so much as we're actually aware of them. Like many of the things in our box are very good things. You know, why wouldn't anyone want to center their lives around some of these things that we see for our future? right? And so she brought her box and I brought my box. And the problem is that we discovered is that when we hand our box of hopes and dreams and desires over to somebody else, the weight changes. Because when you're handed somebody else's box of (laughs) dreams and hopes and desires, uh, that's not what it feels like to you. It's not, it feels like expectations to you. It feels like something that all of a sudden you're now on the hook to fulfill. You're on the hook to make it come true. And that weighs heavier than when somebody's just thinking about their hopes and their dreams, right? An expectation is the strong belief that something is going to happen or will one day in the future be the case. You know, and so, you know, you get a lot of people, you know, oh, we're working on it nudge, nudge. We're not there yet, but we're going to be, right, honey? Nudge, nudge. And there's this expectation that things will be, and there exists this subtle pressure within relationships, maybe sometimes not so subtle, uh, that things are going to eventually be the way that I imagined and wanted them to be, even if we're not there quite yet. And, And here's the thing. What we're doing is we're attempting to create a preferred future for ourselves. Sometimes we're trying to recreate something that we grew up with maybe, or that we saw that was great. And we're like, all right, my hopes and dreams and desires is all trying to recreate that. Sometimes we're trying to avoid what we grew up with and what we saw modeled for us. And so all of our hopes and dreams and desires are geared towards getting away from that, right? And when couples exchange boxes, here's what begins happening, is that they begin uh, negotiating, and bribing. Well, if you'll do this, I'll do this, right? If you will, I will. Back and forth, back and forth, right? And what happens is eventually in that scenario, when you're doing all that bargaining and all of that, eventually what happens is, is people will start keeping score in their relationship as to who's doing the more to fulfill the other person's end of the deal, And when that happens, eventually the relationship becomes characterized by a debt-debtor dynamic. That is, you owe me. You owe me. And the problem is that when this dynamic is what characterizes our relationship, and this is where we kind of landed last time, uh, the problem is, is that when that's the dynamic in the relationship, you cannot recognize or receive love. You can't give it and you can't receive it, right? Let me illustrate it this way. If for some reason you owed me money and then at some point you came up and you handed me money, I would never see that money 
as a gift because you owe it to me. It's something you owe me. I would see it as a payment. And so when you get into a position in your relationships where it's debt debtor and everybody's keeping score and who owes who what, you can't, you can't recognize an act as love and you can't receive love because you don't see it as love. You see it as something that is owed to you. And that makes it very, very difficult. So the question is, how do we keep this from happening? Right? How, how do we keep it from happening? How do we prevent legitimate hopes and dreams and desires um, from, becoming, uh, from becoming and feeling like expectations? How are we able to do that? And the answer uh, is, is, is in answering correctly this question. Right? And, and there's a way that every happy couple answers this question. The, the, question um, the question is this, what do they owe me? What does he owe me? What does she owe me? And happy couples all answer that question when talking about the other person of what do they owe me with this? Nothing. They owe me nothing. They don't owe me anything. And also happy couples also know that they owe each other everything. All at the same time. I owe them everything. They owe me nothing in return, which doesn't make sense. When you just look at that on the surface, that's like, oh, there's a dynamic there. That could get out of control real quick when one person is taking advantage of the other person who might actually have that. But when you get to know people who have the relationship that you want yours to be like, you'll find this, that good relationships are not built on codes of conduct. They're not built on specific roles. They're not built on an exchange of services. Great relationships essentially boil down to a submission competition. In every great relationship, Instead of there being competition or bargaining or negotiation, there is, they don't owe me anything, but I feel that, that I owe them everything. And here's where that idea comes from. Here's where it comes from. At the end of Jesus's ministry, and this is not gonna surprise a single one of you being tapestry folks. At the end of Jesus's ministry, hours away from his arrest, he gathers his guys together and here a few, he says, hey guys, here's a few things that I want you to remember. And then he gives them a brand new command. What's the command? I'm getting ready to be real upset with all you tapestry <laughs> folks, real upset. <laughs> What's the command? Yeah. Now, as soon as Jesus said, I have a new command, like, that should have been the guy's cue to all stand up and leave the room because that was offensive. More than that, that was blasphemous because the only person that can give a command is God. And God had given all the commands through Moses. You could talk about the commands, you could exegete the commands, you could explain the commands, apply the commands, prioritize the commands, all of that you could do to the commands. But what you didn't do was create a new command. That was God's job. 
So here's Jesus. Here's Jesus, who was at the best equating himself with Moses and at the worst equating himself with God. So those guys should have gotten up and gotten out of there as soon as he says, I give you a new command. But here is his new command. He says, a new command I give you, love one another. And they might've said to each other, that's not new, Jesus. And he would say, yeah, I'm not done. Here's the condition on that. As I have loved you, you must love one another. Now, this is an epic moment because Jesus says, okay, I'm reducing the 600 down to this. These are your marching orders. Treat others the way I have treated you. It was kind of like he took the golden rule, treat others as you want to be treated. And he kind of kicked it up a notch, made it the platinum rule. Nope, more than that, treat others as I have treated you. Right? And he could have gone around the table with all the guys that were sitting there and he could have called each and every one of them out by name and said, remember, remember how I treated you? Matthew, Matthew, hey, you remember when we met? You were a tax collector. You were an outcast. You were an embarrassment to yourself, to your country, to your family, right? Matthew, what did I say to you when you were in that condition? Yeah, I mean, you, you asked me to follow you. Yeah, hey, Peter, you remember how you reacted when I asked Matthew to follow me? <laughs> like, you, you remember that? Yeah, I remember. I didn't want him following us because he was a tax collector. Yeah, remember how I let both of you guys stay? I didn't kick either of you out, right? Where'd we go after that? Peter, you remember? Yes, I remember. It was the worst day of my life. We went to his house and you asked more tax collectors to follow us. I get terrible. I hated that day. Hated it. He's like, yeah, Matthew, that's what I did. Now I want you to extend that type of mercy and that type of grace to everyone that you meet for the rest of your life. Then he looks over at another guy sitting around the table, a guy most of you don't even know his name. He goes, hey, Nathaniel. Hey, you, you, you remember what you said when you heard about me? And Nathaniel's probably like, oh, I thought he had forgotten about this. When somebody first told Nathaniel about Jesus, Nathaniel's response was, what good could come from Nazareth? Upon first hearing about Jesus, Nathaniel judged an entire town, a person from that town, the worth of them, and essentially said, yeah, if it's from there, it's trash. I'm not interested, right? That's what he said. And he looks at Nathaniel and says, Nathaniel, you insulted me. But what did I do? Well, you, you, you invited me to follow you. And until this made up moment in this sermon, you never brought it up again. That's what, that's what Nathaniel said, right? He says, all of you, I could go, he could go around to every single one. I want you to treat others the way that I have treated you. And then a few short hours later, after he said that, he literally gave his life on their behalf and on our behalf. And newsflash, he expects the same from us. And every single New Testament imperative from the resurrection on keys off of this singular idea. Then a few short years later, Paul, who uh, came onto the scene hunting down Christians and then became a Jesus follower, um, 
And when he did become a Jesus follower, his life was completely transformed. Flipped over. He took this idea of loving others in the way that Christ loved us and he began to apply it to all the different types of relationships that we have. You can go through and you can read the way that, that Paul wrote and he like picks out relationships with your neighbors, with, with uh, your children, with, and he puts it, he's like, here's how you apply Jesus's love others as I have loved you. And he included marriage in those conversations. And you may have been thinking up to yourself up to this point, well, man, Andy, you haven't said anything to get you in too much in trouble on Mother's Day. Just wait, here it comes. Here it comes. So in his letter to the church in Ephesus, he, he applies Jesus's command to marriage. And here's what he says. And disclaimer, this verse has been horribly, horribly misused by churches and men's for hundreds of years to the detriment of women in marriages. But here's what he says. Wives, submit yourselves to your own husbands as you do <laughs> to the Lord. Just what you wanted to hear on Mother's Day, right? I apologize. But I mean, could it be any clearer? Let's just pray and go home. Dear Heavenly Father. Right? I can give you people could feel the tension in the room right now with some of the looks I'm getting. Now, if this bothers you, this verse, and this verse has bothered a lot of people. If this bothers you, I'm glad you're here because... Our English Bibles are translations of Greek texts, right? And there are groupings of Greek texts that are all over the East. I mean, they have been spread, they have been spread everywhere. And the oldest manuscripts of Paul's letters that we have, that you can take from the Greek, the oldest manuscripts, if you took them and translated them literally, here's what that verse says. It says this, it says, wives, to your own husbands as to the Lord. So forget the first part up there. Just that second part. Wives, to your own husbands as to the Lord. That's literally what the verse says. There is no verb, the word submit, in that verse. It just isn't there. Now, before I explain why it's not there, I want to explain uh, something else, and this is so important. Because when Paul's first century audience read this, or had this read to them, um, heard him teach about this idea, and the phrase comes up, women, submit to your husbands, um, it hit different. Now, to so to, in our culture today, you hear that, and you're just like, eh. Then that wasn't the case. That was established culture. That wasn't new information. That wasn't something that was challenged, right? It wasn't a big deal. So the question is, why isn't, if you go back to the earliest Greek manuscripts of Paul's letters, why isn't the word submit actually in that verse, right? And the answer is, is because the verb comes from the verse before it. Because in the way that the Greeks would write a typical Greek grammatical device uh, is you make a statement with a verb in it, right? And then in the following statement, you just imply the verb from the previous statement. You don't actually include it. So you take your verb from what came before it. And that's how you find it. So we should ask ourselves then, okay, well, what was what immediately came before it? 
What is, what, where did we get the verb for this verse? And this is a game changer because here's what Paul said right before he told wives to submit to their husbands. Here, here's the verse that sets the tone for everything that follows. It is this, submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. So there's where the verb comes from that is implied in the verse that follows. Submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. And there it is again, all tied back to, oh, this is about Jesus, how he behaved and how he expects us to behave. And every time the apostle Paul tells us to do something, he points us back to Jesus, not the Old Testament, not the 10 commandments. He points it back to Jesus as God through Christ did something extraordinary for you, you are to demonstrate that same kind of love in your relationships with each other, including romantic relationships and marriage. That is to be the standard. Submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. The submission <laughs> is mutual. It is mutual submission. This is why marriage, marriage should be a submission competition, right? because the command to submit is mutual. And the number of sermons I've heard that has ignored this blows my mind. And the damage that has been caused both in churches and in marriages because of this blows my mind. And if you hear nothing else today, listen, this idea, the command to submit is mutual. This is what makes marriages amazing. This is it. This is what happy couples know. Happy couples know, I am here for you and you are here for me. I am here for you because, not because you are here for me. I am here for you because God was here for me. And so because God was here for me, I'm going to leverage everything that I am. All of my talents, all of my abilities, all of my efforts, all of my commitment, all of my devotion, everything that I have, all of my resources, I am going to leverage for you, full stop. Full stop. And I'm telling you, in the first century, this idea was revolutionary. And what Paul does next is brilliant because what came next had an effect on the audience that mirrors our response to when we in our current culture hear wives submit. We're like, Aah. what he said next to the men had that effect on them in that time. He said it and their response was, that doesn't sit right. That doesn't sit right. Because he gave the whole first submit to one another out of Christ. Said, hey wives, here's kind of what that can look like. Hey man, here's what that looks like for you. Husbands, here's what he says. Love your wives. And we're all like, well, of course, that makes perfect sense. Let's go on home. Good deal. <laughs> uh, but in the first century, that's not the response. 
That didn't make perfect sense. The response would have been, whoa, 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 wait. I don't have any obligation to my wife. That would imply that she has some sort of standing. She does not in this culture. Uh, in fact, she's got obligations to me. That was the culture. And the apostle Paul says, yeah, well, I'm not finished. Love your wives just as. And that's a connector that Paul uses all the time in his writings. It's the connection, it's the link. These are two words that you look for throughout the New Testament. Love your wives just as Christ, there it is again, pointing back to him, loved the church and gave himself up for her. Now, this is a Christian audience in Ephesus that's reading this letter or having it read to them, right? And the guys are thinking, wait, 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 wait. I know this story. I know how this ends and it doesn't end well for Christ, like, we remember, it's why we're following. So where are you going with this, Paul? Are you telling us that we have a responsibility towards women and towards our wives? Because Paul, if I'm hearing you correctly, if I'm hearing you, you seem to be implying a sense of equality between women and men. If we are to mutually submit to each other, you are implying an equality. So where are you going with this, Paul? Because Jesus died and we don't think we like that. And we don't sure we like this whole equality thing that you're bringing up. But Paul still isn't done. He says, no, I'm gonna take it further than that. More than equality. In the same way, husbands ought to love their wives as their own bodies. In other words, he's saying, okay, if you can't get the theology thing and wrap it around, wrap your mind around that, uh, if you get it, let me make it simple. You are to care for and treat her as if she were you. As if she were you. That is the way you are supposed to approach this. You are responsible as if she were you. And this was more than they could imagine. This seems like kind of an inherent idea to us in our culture, maybe today for some people at least, but this was completely foreign. He keeps going. He says, he who loves his wife loves himself. And <laughs> so I can imagine they're just like, Paul, stop being around the bush. What are you talking about? And essentially he would say, listen, there is a mystery that when two people are married, they become one. There is no division. There is no pulling away. There is no separation. And he would say specifically to the men that were listening, men, your wives are you. They are you. And this was brand new to them. Completely foreign idea to equate men and women. In fact, more than foreign, it was scandalous to, in that culture to bring that up. It's why I said what comes next is why what came first was so offensive to us. The reason we bristle against wives submit when we read that within the scripture, the reason that we, something stands up on us is because there's kind of this American idea of equality. Now we failed horribly at actually putting it into practice. I mean, embarrassingly failed at it, but the idea is there. It's in our rhetoric. It's kind of in the back of the mind, even if we haven't, uh, even if we haven't actually uh, achieved it. But guess who was the first person with any authority anywhere 
who declared women as equal to men. It was Jesus. This was his idea that he introduced into the world. He elevated women in a way that not only had never been done before, but was downright offensive to people. Right? Jesus. He did that. And then Paul comes along and he says, hey, hey, man, you're to treat the women in your life with extraordinary value. So Jesus rolled it out. Paul kind of pumped it up and escalated it. <laughs> and, uh, uh, and he's like, listen, I know you weren't surprised when I said women submit to husbands. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But guys, you're to submit right back. Right back. Submit to one another. And this was life-changing. And, and this is true in every possible permeation of marriage that there is. Submit to one another. So back to Paul. He says, all right, men, spotlight back on you. We're going to put back on you. All right. What is life to you? Man, if you had to answer that question, what, what is life? And whatever the answer to that question is, when it comes up with what is life to you? Put her before that. That's how you should arrange your marriage. Put her before that. And that gets difficult. That gets difficult because you cannot do that as long as you have a giant box of hopes and dreams and desires to you, expectations to them in between you. It's just not possible. And this is what happy couples know. Drop your box and put the other person first. Every time. So here's the question. How do you do that? How do you go about it? How do you get everything out of the expectation box back into the hopes, dreams, and desires box, right? And what do you do with it once you get it there? Once everything's kind of in its right place, what are you supposed to do with it? And the answer to the first question is to decide, like we said, that the other person doesn't owe you anything. That's how you get everything kind of in its right place, is to decide the other person doesn't owe you anything. And for this to work, it has to be mutual. Submit to one another. That's what oneness looks like in relationship. Their best over your best. Their desires over your desires. Now, I asked you last time we were together, I asked you to do kind of a mental exercise, right? To think about a couple of things, right? I asked you to think about what it was that you had in your box of hopes and dreams and desires that you took into relationships. And then once you were able to kind of define some of those things, I asked you to then think about who was carrying the weight of that? Who was carrying it? So here's the assignment for you this week. Hopefully you thought about those things. If not, spend some time. But here's the new part of the assignment. The new part of the assignment is this, is I want you to ask your partner, hey, what is in your box of hopes and dreams and desires? What is in your box? Now, this is, this is difficult because I don't want you to just ask the question. I want you then to not say anything while they tell you, which is going to be difficult for some. And I want you to stay there even if the reaction is bad, right? 
Because somebody, you know, some of the reactions may be shocked that you even bothered asking. Other reactions may be anger. I can't believe, I can't believe we're 10, 15, 20 years into this and you don't know what my hopes and dreams and desires are. Like, what have you been paying attention to all this time, right? But whatever the response, just listen, take it in. Now, what I'm getting ready to say here is gonna be painting with a broad brush. So take it for that. But most men, if you sit, and especially if you bring it up out of the blue and say, hey, what's in your box of hopes and dreams and desires for the future in our relationship? That answer is probably gonna be, I don't know. <laughs> well, I don't know. And listen, to be as honest as I can, we're not lying when we say, I don't know. Most of us haven't actually sat and thought about it long enough to define it. But the danger in that is even though we haven't sat long enough to think about it, to define it, to be able to put it into words and set it out there so that it makes sense, we still expect you to fulfill it. Don't we guys? We've got this expectation, however unspoken it is. And when it's not fulfilled, things get sideways. And to be honest, and I don't know why, I think it's just a cultural thing of deeper conversations in general, again, with a broad brush. Um, most men are scared to talk about this, their hopes and dreams and desires. But, th but the what's in your box question, if you're willing to ask that question, that is the I'm all in on this relationship question. I'm all in. I am more interested in what's in your box and what your hopes, dreams, and desires are than I am what's in my box. I'm all in and I wanna know what those things are because I am now going to start putting those things first in our relationship. And this is the less self option when you're looking at how you handle your relationships, right? And less self people, as you look around people, and you see happy people, the ones that are happy are less self people. You do not find happy, selfish people. They may seem it on the surface, but you don't have to dig very far to find out that they are not happy. Right now, I know there are some objections. I know some of you, your minds may be spinning to some of this. Andy, I, okay, I get it, I get it, I get it. But, 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 if I take the pressure off of those expectations of what we, if I take the, I, if I take the pressure off, you have no idea what they're going to do. If I take the pressure off, you have no idea how much money they'll spend. If I take the pressure off, uh, you know, they'll never come home from work. They'll always be at the office and doing whatever it is that they got. If I take the pressure off, they'll never follow through on the things that they said they were doing. I've got to keep up that pressure. I've got to keep up those expectations. If I take the pressure off, I am, to which I would say, oh, how are you going to finish that sentence? You are what? I am, yeah, what is it? I am, most of the time that sentence proceeds like this. If I take the pressure off, I am afraid that they will or they won't, or that they'll start or stop. And it won't go the way that I want it to go. 
But listen, I'm telling you, this in relationships is the way forward. And if you are in a relationship that has boiled down to a tug of war against each other, and the thought of laying down your side of the rope is terrifying, I get it. I get it. Because in our mind, if I let go of my side of the rope, it all goes in your direction and I'm left with nothing. Right? I get that. But listen, there is no hope until you let go of the rope. I did not mean for that to rhyme. <laughs> Without letting go of the rope, there is no hope. No, it still rhymes. <laughs> you know what I'm saying? Until you're willing to drop your end and being insistent on pulling things in your direction, your relationship will not be everything that it can be. But listen, when you were dead in your sin, when you were dead in your sin, God through Christ dropped his end of the rope of what you owed him. He dropped it. And he did something for you, regardless of if you ever do something back in return. And that, that is the gospel. This is why all New Testament commands and imperatives after the resurrection point back to what Christ did for us. So submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. Happy couples, happy couples, put each other first in an effort to be last. Let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, Lord, I thank you. I thank you that we have been given these brilliant instructions that is the key to creating happy, healthy, fruitful, life-giving marriages and relationships. And God, that we can look back at examples throughout history of how this principle works. And on the flip side of what happens in relationships when this is violated. Lord, let us this week be aware of where we are in our relationship with this. If we have given our partner a burden of expectation, and if we are in some sort of tug of war relationship, God, shine that so we can see it and give us the confidence to let go of our end of the rope and begin to put our partner first in every situation. Lord, I thank you for what I believe to be positive incomes, uh, outcomes that will happen in our relationships if we grab a hold of this idea. I thank you that you did it for us. Now let us do it for the one that we care for the most. I thank you in your name, amen. Amen. Thank you so much for being out today. Look forward to next week. I uh, hope you have a great Mother's Day and that I didn't bury myself too deeply.